everyone. Why don't we go ahead and get started? Uh, I'm Damon Wilson. I'm Executive Vice President for Programs and Strategy here at the Atlantic Council. It's my pleasure to, to welcome you here today for this on-the-record conversation uh, on France, Europe's swing state. So I want to encourage uh, those that are watching online to join into the conversation uh, on Twitter using the hashtag StrongerWithAllies and following us at AC Future Europe. So the I just want to offer a little bit of context before we jump into an extraordinary uh, program uh, associated with the launch of uh, one of our issue briefs on uh, a swing state in Europe, France today. Um, the debate uh, in France ahead of its 2017 presidential election is taking place clearly on the heels of a wave of electoral shocks across the transatlantic community. Um, in many respects, this year, the, the American election was a sense of, as we've been calling it, Brexit gone global. And this moment of an anti-establishment outsider, political wild card, bulldozing past the traditional suspects could replay itself in European capitals in the coming months, the coming years, redefining the West as we know it, perhaps. So at this critical juncture, um, we wanted to shift eyes and attention to what's unfolding in France, where um, one of the next upcoming seismic shifts could take place. The fundamental values of the French Republic perhaps are at stake during a political season when the role of religion, of culture, identity, immigration have surged in prominence alongside traditional election uh, issues in France, such as economics, entitlements, reform. Um, an anchor to the European project and a critical driver of a purposefully engaged Europe on the world stage, we believe France represents a critical, the critical swing state in Europe. Analysts are already disputing predictions for next spring based on November's Republican primary result and recent announcements within the Socialist Party ahead of its January primary. We see recent polling failures in the UK and the US, along with unexpected and unprecedented voting patterns, reinforce political uncertainty across transatlantic democracies. So what international rules and norms will be upheld or rewritten if the French and American governing elite actually adopt and coincide with Putin's agenda? How will we tackle global instability if the, as the transatlantic community if France takes an extreme turn to the right? How can France and the US develop stronger ties to their electorates, better deliver on the basic needs of their societies? And what must France and the United States resolve at home to remain facilitators of global peace and prosperity? So with this event, excuse me, with this event, the Atlantic Council is launching this paper, France, Europe, Swing State, Foreign Policy Begins at Home, to make the connection between the domestic and the global. The authors are Atlantic Council Senior Fellows, Jeremy Gaillon and Jeff Lightfoot. They're here with us today, and they argue in this paper that France is uniquely positioned and equipped to shape the transatlantic agenda at a time when the futures of the European Union and NATO are in play. Um, but they argue that this is only the case if there's some medicine at home, some reform at home. So they propose recommendations on how France can extend its full geopolitical power aligned with transatlantic interests. And I think these views are gonna be up for debate in today's discussion. So I'm delighted to welcome uh, an incredible team that we have with us. Uh, Ms. Sonia Dridi, thank you very much for being with us, a freelance correspondent in Washington, representing several French outlets. Uh, Dr. Richard White, the Director of Global Attitudes and, uh, and Research at Pew Research Center, who will bring public opinion and polling data into our discussion to base it in the realities of what our electorates believe. And Dr. Fran Burwell, Vice President, 
for the European Union and Special Initiatives here at the Council, and as well as, of course, the authors Jeremy Gaillon and Jeff Lightfoot, the brain trust behind much of our work here at Fran on France, as well as part of our intergenerational strategy of work at the Council. I also want to offer just a special word of welcome to our board director and former president, Atlanta Council, Atlanta Council President Jan Lodel. Thank you for being with us, Jan. Uh, Jan hosted uh, this fall uh, a discussion a res at his residence for reception with the uh, French ambassador, Ambassador Aro, that provided much of the intellectual underpinnings in the run-up for this report launch. But first, to help us understand France's domestic conversation, we're going to ground this conversation in Washington with the reality of what's happening in Paris. We're delighted to bring into the conversation uh, Dr. Dominique Moisy. Uh, in a f he'll, he'll join us in a few minutes uh, over video conference, um, hopefully to report on the realities facing France, French leadership and society at this pivotal time, its role in Europe and its place in the wider transatlantic community. Uh, Dr. Moisy is a senior counselor, counselor at the Institut Montaigne in Paris and a co-founder and senior advisor of the Institut Francais des Relations Internationales. IFRI, as many folks know it, he teaches at Sciences Po and at Harvard University and is the European Geopolitics Chair at the College of Europe in Poland. A renowned strategic thinker on French and European affairs, globalization, culture, among many other issues, uh, Dr. Moisy is, uh, uh, along with his colleagues of the Institut Montaigne, they have a, bring a critical perspective uh, to the Council's efforts to reinforce the Franco-American cooperation and France's leadership in Europe and the world. So with that, let me turn it over to, uh, to you, Mr. Moisey, please. Well, thank you very much for uh, inviting me. Uh, I uh, say hello to my friends in the audience. I'm glad to uh, see them again and to renew contact with them. Uh, first to start with, I was the guest in late September in New York of a group of uh, investors, scholars, whatever, who were very interested in the fate of Europe and very worried about the rise of populism in Europe. And uh, at some point, as I concluded my remark, I wanted to say to them, well, listen, it's very worrisome, but by the end of the day, the chances or the risk of Donald Trump uh, to become president of the United States seem to me higher than the risk uh, of uh, Marine Le Pen to become the next president of France. And, uh, well, we know uh, what happened in the United States. We still don't know what will happen in France. But I think your concern is uh, of great interest because uh, you represent the Atlantic Council and uh, in Western Europe today there are many analysts like myself, who are wondering whether the West is dead, whether we have seen with the election of Donald Trump the end of uh, the transatlantic West. So you have, so to speak, to put uh, the problem of France in perspective. It's going to be a very important election, uh, but there are things of even greater importance that have taken place uh, in the United States not long ago. But it is true that uh, the, important, the importance of France today can be summarized in one formula. The French, given their calendar 
and given uh, their relative importance in Europe today, can demonstrate that the victory of populism is not irresistible, that somewhere you can say no to the temptation of populism. The uh, British failed to do so, the Americans failed to do so, the Italians failed to do so, the Dutch may fail to do so very soon, the French may still succeed in saying no to the populism. It's very difficult today to explain the uh, political situation in my country. No one knows uh, who are going to be, by the end of the day, the candidates. Who is going to represent the left? Will it be uh, the former prime minister of France, Manuel Valls? Will it be uh, uh, a more radical figure, such as Arnaud Montebourg? Will it be a middle ground figure, such as Vincent Payon? No one knows. And uh, I would be uh, at a loss uh, to try to give uh, some prediction. Will Emmanuel Macron be the, between brackets, the Obama of France, the very young person uh, who succeeds uh, in spite of its relative inexperience to seduce the voters by his energy and by the fact that he is new? Or will, by contrast, the French uh, vote for an experienced former Prime Minister, Monsieur François Fillon, who could reassure the right, attract even some element of the National Front, and be the voice of reform, and uh, to some extent, uh, social revolution, given the radical nature of what is suggesting. But I don't know. I don't know. No one can say who are going to be the two candidates facing each other in the second ballot of the French elections. If we follow the rules of what we have seen in Great Britain uh, with the result of Brexit in the United States, with the victory of Donald Trump, one can assume that Marine Le Pen, the representative of the National Front, the leader of the extreme right, will be present in the second ballot. And it has been assumed for months, for years, that she would be present, but she couldn't win. That uh, a kind of glass wall was preventing her uh, from winning because the French system of two ballots uh, makes uh, the triumph of irrationality less probable than when there is only one occasion to express yourself in the British referendum or in the Italian referendum or in the US elections. Though a majority of the American electorate has voted against Donald Trump when it comes to sheer number. But even that is uh, uncertain right now. Uh, because we have failed to measure up uh, to the hunger 
anger uh, to uh, the rejection of the elite uh, by the electorate. And so maybe France will be the confirmation of uh, uh, June 23rd and November 8th. I hope, I pray that it is not going to be the case. Because if it was the case, it would probably be the end of the euro and the end of Europe. And this is the last thing we want to see at a time when the uh, transatlantic partnership has been so shaken by uh, the victory of an American president who says America first and America second and America third. What is at stake in some ways after the uh, surprising uh, result of the Anglo-Saxon? You remember that famous formula, the Anglo-Saxon, uh, the Atlantic Charter, 1941, Churchill, Roosevelt, and what followed that, the kind of sense of shared responsibility between the wise men from Europe and the dynamic men from uh, the United States, the, the formula of Harold, uh, sorry, of Anthony Eden, uh, we are going to be uh, the Athene of Sparta. Well, the Anglo-Saxon have respectively and nearly simultaneously failed to uh, continue their responsibilities. Their responsibilities to Europe in the British case, their responsibilities to the world in the American case. I would be nearly tempted to say that in that context, uh, the torch of uh, democratic capitalism, of liberal values, in the sense we gave to that in the past, could be in the end of the Franco-German uh, partnership, of a renewed couple that uh, could, in a responsible manner, say to the world, well, democracy is not dead. Populism can be stopped. Look, there is a new president in France who defeated Marine Le Pen. Look, there is still Angela Merkel in Germany going to be re-elected for the fourth time consecutively. Will it take place? I don't know. What I know is that France has also a specific responsibility when it comes to its foreign policy. Because it is not shy to intervene militarily in the world because it has to define, together with Germany and the rest of Europe, a common policy vis-à-vis -vis Putin's Russia. The worst thing we could see would be a France unilaterally suspending sanctions vis-à-vis -vis Russia without consulting the Germans, without consulting uh, other Europeans. That would be a catastrophic thing. So what I hope in the weeks, in the months to come, is that the French will be aware of their responsibilities 
for Europe and in some ways for the liberal, democratic, capitalistic order. You don't win an election with values and principles. But I hope that the men who are going to run for the cause of democracy, be they at the end of the day, Emmanuel Macron, François Fillon, or Manuel Valls, will win the battle and say to the world, the country of the French Revolution, the country of the French values of equality, fraternity, and liberty, by the end of the day, has come to its senses and is uh, acting in a responsible way for itself, for Europe, and for the Atlantic world, whatever remains of that term. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for attending this discussion. I'm very pleased to be in company of this great panel. So I think uh, we're going to begin to talk about the publication. And um, so that was written by uh, Jeremy Gallon and Jeff Lightfoot. Um, Jeremy, you talk about the, in the publication about France as a pivotal swing state. Can you explain us why uh, what will happen in France in the next few months will be uh, so crucial for uh, Europe and for the world? Well, thank you, Sonia. As mentioned by Dominique, France is at crucial times uh, with a major rise of populism on the far right. National Front is close to 30% in the polls, but also the far left, close to 15%. Um, and with a rise of Euroscepticism, even Europhobia, in most of the European member states, uh, France has a major role to play in order to reinvigorate the European project, but also the transatlantic alliance. And uh, in this regard, assuming that Brexit moves forward, I don't think that there is any alternative to the Franco-German couple. The problem is that the Franco-German couple today is extremely weakened by diverging economic views, but also a growing economic imbalance. And so it's absolutely essential for France, if France would, wants to play a major role in the transatlantic alliance and in Europe, to implement first domestic reforms. For France, foreign policy begins at home. So, very briefly, what are the main reforms that France should implement? The first reform is to reduce the size of the state. 50% of GDP is spent in public spending in France. It's far too high. If you uh, look at the total market capitalization of the 40 biggest companies in France, the French state is one of the major shareholders. You have a French state, paradoxically, that is present in all the components of society, but whose authority is more and more questioned. So what we advocate in the paper is to have a French state that focus on a limited number of areas, education, healthcare, justice, security, which is a major concern of French citizens right now, foreign policy and defense, but on these key topics, a French state that delivers and that answers to the major concerns of French citizens. The second thing is that a French state would give a breathing room for French society would also enable French people to innovate, create, become more entrepreneur 
in France. And in this context, you have to reduce the administrative constraints and tax burden in French society. You have every year hundreds of thousands of young French people who emigrate to London, to the Silicon Valley in Asia. It's a major blow to French society. It's a major hit to the capacity of the country to uh, develop and to create more economic growth. The third set of reforms is economic reforms on the labor market, more flexibility, uh, more competitiveness. France suffers from a major flagging competitiveness and the necessity to create the condition in particular for small and medium companies to hire more. France is victim of, on average, a very high rate of unemployment. I was born in 1995. I come from a generation that has only known and experienced a very high level of unemployment. You have, on average, more than 10% of unemployment, 25% among the youth. If you go to certain French suburbs or very poor rural areas, it's 40%, 50%. It's a real poison for French society. It threatens the social fabric. It gives the feeling to French people that you cannot climb the social ladder anymore and that it's more and more difficult difficult to succeed in France. So major reforms in this direction. And just one point, and we thought a lot uh, with Jeff about it. I think it's important to implement structural reforms, but we have to take into account what happens with the Brexit, what happens with the uh, US elections. Uh, you cannot just implement liberal Thatcherite reforms and make a tabula rasa of the French social model and think that, OK, we'll see what happens. No, you will have millions of people who will be impoverished by these reforms. You have already millions of people who vote for extremist movements. You have to anticipate the economic and social shocks of your reforms. So on the one hand, implement major structural reforms, but on the other hand, keep a social safety net in order to enable these millions of people who will suffer from this um, domestic reforms, at least in the short term, to go through this transition period. And then there will be a four point that we can address later, which is a question of a better integration of substantial part of the French society, in particular our Muslim community. Yeah, yeah we addressed that um, afterwards. I wanted to see with you, Jeff, uh, you explore the different uh, uh, scenario in, in the paper about mm -hmm. um, the implementation of reform or the lack of reform for Europe. Can you tell us about that? Sure, yeah. Well, and uh, one of the things that we tried to do with this paper, you know, we had just a few thousand words, so we didn't want to go too expansively with it. The Atlanta Council has branded itself as a place of strategic foresight. And they've got guys like Matt Burroughs and stuff who have been for 30 years in the intelligence community doing a really rigorous set of strategic foresight analysis to anticipate future trends and things like that. That was a little bit outside the scope of this paper in terms of the methodology that Matt and others use. But what we did want to try to do is to look a little bit into the future and, and, and try to link policy choices that the, the French government, the French people are going to be making in the coming months and connect them to France's international position and what it will impact it will have on France's role in Europe, NATO, and the world. We are, are very well aware of the fact that French people from across generations and across political parties recognize and believe that France has a unique role uh, to play in the world. You just heard uh, Dr. Moisi say that. And, and we think that's important, and we think it was important to try to connect the reform agenda today to France's weight in the world and then take a look at some of the consequences. And, and we tried to sort of sketch out the, the idea of a France which embraces populism, closes its borders, removes itself from the Eurozone, and in that we see the spectrum of decline. I mean, we see a France that, in our view, will be isolated within Europe that really won't be, that this the nostalgia of a sort of a France that's independent by 
by thumbing its nose and being kind of uh, playing off to grandeur and opposing the United States in some ways, that is not, in our view, a recipe for French greatness. We actually think it's a recipe for French isolation. But the second point, though, to that was that status quo and muddling through, in our view, is a recipe for long-term decline. And we wanted to try to put that idea forward. Um, Fran is the expert on the European Union, um, uh, the EU, and not just the EU, it's Western democracies, uh, sort of very good at muddling through in many cases and these late night uh, Brussels dinners and things like that where a compromise is fudged. And we think that a status quo scenario is one that will ultimately continue this disequilibrium in the European Union that puts great pressure on Germany that I think is more than Germany really can or should want to handle. And, and is one where France will find itself where its ambitions and then its ability to, to achieve those ambitions on the international stage, there's a growing delta between those. And then we look at the scenario where for France that does take the kind of reforms that Jeremy just outlined, which is a France that sort of finds a renewed sense of confidence, that finds that new uh, sense of equilibrium with Germany to carry the European project forward. And this is why we get back to that point of the swing state. I've been talking with a number of friends who will say, well, you know, obviously Germany is the key country in Europe. We don't disagree with that at all. I mean, if you look at, at the critical role that German leadership has played in keeping the European Union together, it's essential. But I see my friend Michael Meyer here in the audience who runs the Eberstiftung, and I've been privileged to take a number of trips to Germany with, with Michael and his colleagues. And one of the things that's been uh, always impressed in me is that German leadership works well in a European and in a transatlantic context. So we can't try to pin the burden on, on Germany alone. If Europe is going to come out of this spiral of crisis, it's going to be through Franco-German leadership together. And that's going to require a set of reforms that allows France to be credible in the eyes of Germany and in Brussels. And it allows France to have the economic heft and political um, will to see through these kinds of reforms and, and take Europe forward. Okay, thank you. Um, Fran, if this reform doesn't happen and we see the rise of populism in France, is there a risk to see a Europe with insular nation states and uh, with their own political and economical agendas? Well, I think that's a, a complicated question. But let me first say that um, the report, this is really an excellent report, but it leaves a question hanging. And that question is, we know, and uh, I'll talk about the European institutions in a minute, but uh, we know that France has had an agenda for reform, a need for reform over the last few years. There's been no shortage of that. The question is, why hasn't it happened? And what is going to block it now? Um, you, Jeff, said about the European Union sometimes muddling through. Well, the Commission has actually been pretty tough with France and has been very direct about what needs to happen and the need for reform. And it is the French who have been coming back every six months with special pleading, and they've been given allowances because of the enhanced need for budgetary support given the security situation, uh, and things of that nature. But the French have not made the reforms. And I think the question to come back to, uh, to, come back to the authors and to come back to French politicians and people like Dominique uh, is, why not? Everybody kind of knows what has to be done. And I think that we are at a time throughout Europe, across Europe, of significant change in terms of political coalitions. The old assumptions about who was voting for whom are gone. Mm -hmm. uh, and the fact that uh, Filon could get this far while advocating getting rid of 500,000 government jobs in France is pretty amazing. So I think we don't know, uh, even less, we have even less confidence in our assumptions than we did before the American elections. And I think we have a great deal of uncertainty there. But I think 
the question about whether this creates a nation of nations, a, a, a Europe of the nations, is a little bit different. Yes, a Le Pen victory will push in that direction. But I would also say that a Le Pen victory uh, and a Le Pen presidency, the comparison we should look to is Tsipras uh, and Syriza in Greece, where they came in contrary to uh, the European institutions, even organized a referendum that, they thought would that he thought would strengthen his position, and ended up having to accept all the positions the opposite of which he had run on. Leaving the euro would be a financial catastrophe for France, total catastrophe. I just don't see how anyone can actually talk about that in reality. It's kind of like building a wall in Mexico, a Mexican border, and getting the Mexicans to pay for it at the same time. So I think a lot is going to depend on what happens in other countries and whether France is isolated or whether it is part of a movement. We'll have our first indication of the Dutch elections, but we now also have the Italian elections in play because it's very likely that we'll see elections probably before the summer, certainly by mid-year, uh, in Italy. And we may see Renzi return, and we may not. So I think we don't know yet whether this is going to lead to a more insulated Europe. It will lead to a Europe that is more focused on its domestic issues. There's no doubt about that. But I think it's not just Europe, it's also the United States. And here we have an administration coming to power which, um, to be blunt, seems to get its European advice from Nigel Farage. And I think that this is something that uh, bears close watching because there has been nothing said by President-elect Trump or his associates that um, shows a positive attitude towards the European Union or even the European project writ large. Uh, if the um, language has been sometimes challenging about NATO, but then sometimes not, we have not heard anything on the positive side about European integration, the strength of the Eurozone, uh, the responsibility of France, for example, to live up to its budgetary uh, restrictions within the Eurozone. So we have, um, a time perhaps coming up when we will have a US that is more insulated from that element of Europe, as well as Europe being more insulated from the United States. Uh, Richard, we saw the rise of populism, of course, here in the US, and we see it happening more and more in Europe, and even in France. Uh, the Pew Research Center did some, uh, had some findings about that. Can you tell us? Sure, yeah. You know, we do uh, survey work around the world, and across Europe, and when you're talking about the, the rise of populism in France, I think it, uh, you know, it shares some of the characteristics that we see elsewhere in Europe. Um, you know, certainly, the, it's not all about economics, but I think economics is part of the story. Uh, there's a question we've asked around the world, do you think that uh, the economic future essentially is going to be better for the next generation in our country or worse? And when we ask that question in Latin America, Africa, Asia, people are optimistic about the next generation's future. When we ask it in the United States, and especially in Europe, uh, majorities are pessimistic. They actually think the next generation is going to be worse off than their parents financially. So I think that, you know, that long-term economic anxiety is one of the things that's fueling uh, populism in France, uh, as well as in other Western nations. Uh, there's also a, a security element of it as well. You know, we see across the European countries we survey, as well as the United States, 
people say that ISIS is their main concern when it comes to potential international threats. And across Europe, uh, we also see a lot of people tying their concerns about terrorism to the refugee issue. They believe that more refugees coming into their country is going to lead to an increased uh, risk of a terrorist attack in their country. So you know, there's a security element of it, and again, many tie that to the refugee issue. And there's also sort of a, an element of it, I think, that's linked to culture and identity. And we see that you know, in various different ways. Certainly, we ask about Muslim minority communities in these countries, including France. We see a lot of concerns, a perception, for example, that uh, among many people, at least, that the Muslim community in France, elsewhere in Europe, doesn't want to participate in the broader culture, wants to remain distinct from the larger society. So you've got these economic concerns, you've got these security concerns, these concerns related to culture and identity. And I think uh, one of the challenges is that people don't have a lot of confidence in traditional political institutions to deal with these challenges they see. Uh, you know, support for mainstream political parties, as we all know, in many countries is on the decline. There's a lack of faith in uh, institutions of the European Union. So that's something that I think we'll, you know, to look out for in these coming elections is people have these concerns and to what extent do they still have any confidence in more traditional political leaders, traditional political parties to address these challenges. And uh, for you guys who walk on Europe and on the United States, can we see different routes for populism in Europe and in the United States that might explain why uh, you know, the Front National in France uh, could uh, succeed, you know, win the election, or at the contrary, no, because it's not exactly the same issues that in the US or that we saw in Great Britain. Um, also, for instance, I think the, the Pew Research Center uh, found out that uh, the French people have a better view of the Muslim community than in some other uh, um, countries, so even if there is a, the, the rise of populism, it seems that it's different uh, in, you know, in Europe and in the US and in particular in France. So could that explain maybe a different outcome uh, in France in particular? Um, well, ju just to get back quickly to, to mm -hmm. the remarks made, made by Fran, uh, why France has been unable to implement structural reforms over the last three decades? I think that on the one hand, you have a political context. Uh, President Hollande, for instance, was elected not on a mandate to reform the country. He was uh, elected with the basis that finance was his enemy. And uh, then when he tried to make a shift and to implement social democratic um, uh, reforms, he didn't have the majority in the parliament to do so. So, but where I'm optimistic is that the success of Fillon showed that even with a really pro-reform agenda, you can win a landslide victory in the right-wing primaries. Yeah. But also on the left-wing candidate, the popularity of someone like Macron showed that you can really support a pro-reform agenda. And there are several polls in France that have shown that now the overwhelming majority of French people are in favor of major reforms of the labor code and in the, of the job market. So you will just say, OK, President Hollande tried recently to implement minor reforms of the job market. And there was the opposition in the streets, many strikes, etc. You are a country of 67 million inhabitants. The real problem is that it's a country that is blocked by a few hundred thousand people. And that every time political leadership has ceded to a minority of few very minoritarian trade unions. And so as long as you will not have political elites with the courage to implement structural reforms, I think that 
yeah. it will be the major issue. But I see really a shift. And in particular, I think that major political leaders on the right wing and on the left wing understand that now it's time to implement these reforms and that they will have the support of the public opinion. On your question uh, about the rise of populism on both sides of the Atlantic, I think we see major common trends. Mm -hmm. a mistrust toward political establishment, towards the media, towards elites, toward experts that we share on both sides of the Atlantic. Now the situation is very different. And what we try also to underline in our paper is that contrary to what is often said, uh, Muslim community is far better integrated in France than what is usually said in, the, in certain media. And that uh, uh, France should not try to replicate the US model of integration or other models of integration. French model of integration is based on secularism. Secularism is part of French history. The French Republic built itself against the monarchist Catholic Church. So there is a, it's a part of French identity. So on the one hand, France will have the challenge in the next few years, in particular in a period where the country is hit by major terrorist attacks and by major security threats, to on the one hand fight against Islam fundamentalism, uh, the radicalism in overcrowded prisons, the rise of Salafism in many neighborhoods, the question of the training of imams. You have just a minority of imams who speak French in France, which is a major issue when you want to do counter-radicalization. But on the other end, not implementing a hardline, uncompromising version of secularism. You talk about a punitive version of secularism. Isn't yes. it like time to... I think that, again, secularism is essential in France. But uh, we have seen the controversy of the Burkini last summer. I think it's not helpful to, to play uh, with these populist controversies. And just one example. In 1905, so 111 years earlier uh, the controversy of this summer, you had the same kind of controversy about the Catholic cassock, la soutane, in France. And during the summer of 1905, you had many MPs in France who were for a ban of the Catholic cassock in the public space, using kind of the same argument than for the Burkini. It's a form of enslavement, and it's uh, uh, against the Republic, against secularism. And by that time, Aristide Briand was the man who drafted the law of 1905 of separation of the church and the state. And more moderate MPs said, no, if the Republic bans the Catholic cassock, the Republic will be seen as intolerant. And we should more bet on the fact that we, the Republic will be able to integrate the Catholic in the community of the Republic. And the result was that in 1914, on the eve of the First World War, Catholic have been integrated successfully and that France was united. And at a time where Europe is again confronted with major tensions, that the world faces many uncertainties, I think we should not forget uh, the lessons uh, of history. Yeah, but if, if we have a, a leader uh, like François Fillon who won, win or, if, uh, or Marine Le Pen, do you think, I mean, how we see, it, especially with the victory of François Fillon in France uh, at the primaries, uh, a return, a comeback of uh, conservatism and uh, religious conservatism, uh, Catholicism. Uh, do, 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 are, you optimistic, are you optimistic about you know, uh, this uh, less punitive secularism in France because the trend doesn't appear to be so? Well, just on this particular point, and then I will let uh, the other panelists complete. Uh, I think that we, we shouldn't uh, consider that the election of François Fillon means that there is a comeback of Catholic conservatism in France. The right-wing primaries, you have 4 million voters. 
In the presidential election, you will have 45, 47 million voters. It's totally a different election. And I think that Francois Fillon knows perfectly that uh, trying to reverse the same-sex marriage, even more on questions of abortion, would be politically a political suicide in French society. French society has evolved a lot. Now there is, I don't think, a spiritual comeback of Catholicism. But in a country which is facing a major sense of decline, I think Catholicism appears as one of the pillars of French identity. So, and you have a tendency when you are uh, facing these times of decline to try to, well, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. keep and uh, what you consider as the key pillars of your national identity. And so Catholicism should be seen in this perspective in France, but not as really a revival of the Catholic spiritualism. I think what we might see is a calculation by Fillon, should he win, mm -hmm. of whether some elements of his conservative agenda, and I agree with you on uh, same-sex marriage and things that are not going to be undone, that are part of a, uh, a Western European Union consensus, not necessarily in Poland, et cetera. Mm. But, um, but, <laughs> but he will have to calculate whether he uses some of the, whether he pursues some of these more conservative social goals, or whether he pursues some of his economic reform. Mm -hmm. And how do these two ambitions meet up together? Does he use some of particularly the anti-Islam, uh, the Burkini ban, and things like that as a way of getting support, actually, from those uh, groups in society who might otherwise not support him through a reform process? Or will he decide that he can't, get, he can't do both on, on both fronts? And I think that's a real political calculation with lots of pollsters and focus groups to, <laughs> to be brought in. Um, but I think that uh, one of the things that we have to watch out for is not just, I think these are similar to the United States mm -hmm. in many regards, uh, but one of the things that we have to watch out for is we are now seeing the evidence uh, of Russian uh, impact on our own elections here in Washington. And I am very concerned mm -hmm. about the Russian impact, potential impact, on the Dutch, French, Italian elections mm -hmm. uh, with the media penetration that we see by the Russians throughout Europe. Uh, as, but we have not even started to talk yet about what they might do in terms of hacking mm -hmm. and what might be released. Uh, and I think that that is something that I'm sure they're talking about in Russia. And, and we need to figure out what impact that may be if they aggressively go after a major European election. I, I just think that's something we've not even really started to think about. Mm -hmm. And it seems that the trend now in, in uh, Europe, and we, we see that with Fillon and some other leaders, is that talking to Russia uh, will be part of the solution. Yes. That it, is that something that worries you? Well, there's been a long... Um, long been an element in French politics of getting on very well with Russia. Mm -hmm. It's been this, you know, that you only have to go back to Tsar's times when the Tsars all spoke yeah. French, right? Mm -hmm. so, um, so there's long been a partnership there. Uh, I think it's going to be a tough call for someone like Filon um, as to whether, sorry, it's my glasses, as to whether he wants to build a strong French-German partnership 
with Chancellor Merkel, who has been very forthright and strong in preserving the sanctions and has made that a cornerstone of her Russia policy, or whether he wants to cause disruptions within the European consensus about that. Uh, it has been a consensus that has been, has seen a lot of noise outside from uh, Orban, Renzi, all sorts of leaders, but who then go into the European Council and vote to sustain the sanctions. So uh, I think, you know, Fillon, if he were to unilaterally or even push very hard in the Council uh, to disrupt the sanctions, I think he would find it bears a high price in terms of his relations with Germany. Mm -hmm. If it is the Americans who state, take the first step towards relaxing the sanctions, I think we have a different case and a very unpredictable case. And um, we, so we talk about the, the rise of populism. Um, it's, of course, also linked to the wave of refugees who arrive in Europe. Um, and, and I think in particular in France too, we have some uh, numbers that shows a, a lot of French people uh, feel that refugees are, you know, a threat to their economy, to the economy, to their jobs. And right, that, that's something we asked about in our, our poll we conducted uh, earlier this year. Uh, I think it was 46% in France said that they believe that, uh, in a 46% plurality said they believe that uh, more refugees would essentially lead to more terrorism. Uh, there are also a lot of concerns about the sort of economic impact of refugees uh, to a lesser extent, but still significant concerns about uh, the impact of refugees on crime uh, in France and elsewhere. Uh, I mean, that being said, to your, to your earlier point, it is worth noting that what I think our, our polling reveals is that um, when it comes to views about uh, Muslims, when it comes to views about diversity, uh, we see less negative sentiments in France than we see uh, you know, elsewhere. In, in much of Europe, 29% um, you know, in France say they have an unfavorable opinion of Muslims in their country. Uh, that's much lower than we see in many other countries. It's two-thirds or more in places like Italy and Greece, Hungary and Spain, uh, Hungary and uh, Poland. Uh, in Spain, it, you know, it's 50%, it's so still much higher than what we see in France. Um, I believe it's 24% in France who say uh, that uh, increasing diversity in their society is, is making the country worse. Um, that's, we asked that question in 10 European countries last year. That, that was the ninth lowest percentage among the 10 countries we polled. And we've seen other signs of this over time. So you know, that's something that uh, I think maybe to the point you, you were suggesting earlier that you know, at least in terms of American media and what you hear about France, you may not always recognize that at least compared to many other European countries, we do see more support for the idea of diversity uh, and less negative views towards Muslim minorities. And the flip side of that, we, we uh, in the report, cited a, a publication by the Institut Montaigne, which is one of the reasons that we wanted to have them have a voice here today, which did a really interesting study that broke something of a taboo because of France and the way that they don't like to break people into communities. But the Institut Montaigne did a study, which is in, published in French, and I don't think they've translated it into English. But it looks at some of the views and norms of French Muslims. And we talk about France as a swing state, but the report essentially identifies a swing group of French Muslims and sort of looks at, it says there are many Islams in France, not one. And that they, if they, they broke it into, through this poll, of about 50% roughly that are essentially integrated and, and share Republican norms 
uh, wholeheartedly. It's about 25% that are conservative, but really not in um, not in major uh, you know not not supporting polygamy and things like that. And then there's about this 25% that is mostly younger in, in tough situations economically or isolated in, in these sort of banlieues, um, and, and they're the ones that are, that are more uh, authoritarian and, and they're out of step with French views, and they see that 25% of the conservatives but still largely in alignment with French norms that is the swing group of will it, will it feel pushed into a certain camp or better integrated into the whole, and as our paper states, France has a long, the Republic has a long tradition mm -hmm. of integrating Groups from from Italy, from Portugal, from all across, uh, from all uh, from Russia, from from many different societies. It's done that before. It can, we think it can do it again. But that 25% may be the swing group within mm -hmm. the the proportion of French Muslims in general. And how uh, what will happen in France with the uh, Muslim community can you know be a good or bad s signal for the rest mm -hmm. of uh, Europe? Yeah, on, on the question of uh, the migration crisis. I just think that it's not the absolute number of refugees, the question in France. It's more the question that you have to give the feeling to your public opinion that you control who enters into the European yeah. Union. Yeah. And uh, I think that one of the major issues at the beginning of the refugee crisis is that French citizens, like European citizens, didn't have the feeling that we knew perfectly who entered into the EU, that the vetting process was done properly, and that uh, we had forgotten that the corollary of the Schengen area and that the removal of your internal borders was to have a perfect control of your external borders. The very positive evolution that we have seen over the last year and a half, last two years, is that the European Union has done a lot to strengthen the control of these borders, to introduce more vetting process. Frontex, uh, which is the agency in charge of controlling the external borders, has a mandate that has been extended. So I think the European Union is aware of this security dimension. And now, more and more, we have the feeling that we know who enters and that it will enable to have a shift in, in the public opinion. What you said is exactly right. What will happen in France will reverberate all across the European Union and also in other European countries. If you have a country with 5 million of Muslim citizens who is able to integrate them properly and to integrate properly the refugees who arrive, well, it will be a very good signal, in particular to many Eastern European countries, who now take the argument of the fact that they have the feeling that multicultural societies that we see in Germany, in France, or in the UK don't work really to refuse to welcome refugees. If we show them that, no, it's possible and it will even create economic growth, it will, be, it will uh, enable the society to be more dynamic. I think it will be a strong signal sent to uh, many other countries who have until now been reluctant to welcome more refugees. But the, the inhabitants of European Union, didn't they already lost faith in the, in the European Union and especially with the uh, last crisis and, and the, 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 this impression of a lack of control? Uh, isn't it too late to, to re rebuild the trust? I don't think it is too late because I think what you see in all of these crises, the Eurozone crisis, the immigration crisis, mm -hmm. terrorism, if you want to see about um, police cooperation and security forces cooperation, even when it is done on an intergovernmental arrangement, the answer turns out to be more cooperation between European governments. Uh, there is no way to, uh, given where we are with Schengen, there is no way for France to protect its own borders yeah. adequately. Absolutely. The only way to do that is at the edge of Schengen. Mm -hmm. And that is going to require a real rethink, which I say is about halfway done, uh, of whether country, how much countries are responsible for their own borders versus whether the Union and others are also responsible. Mm -hmm. 
um, so that countries that have, shall we say, less than adequate border controls uh, can be assisted or should be forced to be assisted by others who are affected by their failure at border control. So there'll be questions like that that come up. Um, I think that although, I mean, we do have a pattern in Europe that is what I call the Brussels made me do it pattern, where uh, countries, governments, if it's something that's good for their country, uh, they will come back from Brussels and say, look what I got everyone to agree to. And if it's something that is more difficult to implement, they say, oh, those others in Brussels, they made me do this. It's not unlike a Washington syndrome here. <laughs> um, but I think that the reality is that people in Europe recognize that their economies and their um, security is contingent upon greater cooperation among European governments. What they are more hesitant about is globalization, is the forces outside okay. of Europe, and whether Europe can adequately protect them or mm -hmm. enable them to adequately cope with those forces. Uh, yeah, I completely agree with, with Fran. I think that you can see a skepticism towards the EU as it is right now in many member states. Mm -hmm. But I think that many people, and the vast majority of French citizens, for instance, understand that the their main concerns, the major challenges we face, migration crisis, the fight against terrorism, the need to protect your citizens from the excesses of globalization require a European response. When you want to deal with the root causes of the migration crisis, you are obliged to spend billions of euros in Afghanistan, in sub-Saharan African countries, in the Middle East, to deal with the root causes of the flows of migration. A country like France alone cannot do it itself. Yeah. Germany alone cannot do it. Yeah. So you need a European response. In terms of intelligence cooperation, well, the terrorist attacks have shown us that uh, there would have been more intelligence cooperation between the different services. Potentially, we would have been better equipped to prevent certain attacks. Mm -hmm. So on the main concerns of French citizens, we need more Europe. And the United States need uh, more Europe and a, and a strong Europe. A strong Europe, absolutely. And I think the Europeans will look potentially, it depends on really very much on what the United States does under this new administration. I think NATO is going to be fine. I actually don't think that there's going to be some sort of reneging of Article 5. I think that was a lot of, I think that was rhetoric. But the countries Marketing. around Europe um, that are not in NATO, I think now would be a good time to be very concerned about that. And particularly for, for security contingencies in and around the European area, where there's been cooperation and reliance, strong reliance, dependence on the United States, uh, I think those days may well be over. They were already, there was a lot of impatience with with Europe's inability to, to, to take care of security contingencies that are not NATO Article 5 contingencies in its perimeter. And the United States has sometimes been, in my mind, too ambivalent about encouraging the Europeans to have that strategic autonomy to do things it needs to do in its own area that the United States isn't going to want to help them on. And I hope that this Franco-German motor thing can be important in giving, in building on France's important defense ambition and capability, but doing this in partnership with Germany and other states to build finally the, the strategic autonomy of a European defense architecture that can actually, if there's a crisis in Africa and the US is, thanks, we're out, that Europe can actually do it. And I, I, I think yeah. that's where the Europeans are going to see that, that none of these countries can do that alone, and they are going to need to work as a union to do that. And do you think that the next administration um, you know, will taking in, into account the importance of this German-French couple. Are, are you worried about you know, what could? I don't know yet. I'm not sure that that's going to be first on their mind. And I don't know. Um, it's, it's, really, it's just so hard to say. It is really hard to separate 
some really strange rhetoric from what is going to have to be the professional running of a certain institution. And, and I think the US is going to find that it, it um, that NATO is a good thing and that the European Union is a good thing. To what extent are we going to, what I do think we may be seeing is the movement of an international system that increasingly is sort of the law of the jungle and the law, law of, the, of the strong. If you look at what's going on in Syria, you know, that's just a classic example where norms and international, that just doesn't, it's all out the window. The United States can do really well on that system, actually, because it's a really strong country with a huge military and a lot of friends and allies. It's not a great place for Europe to be. And, and to what extent do European countries look at this multipolar world and, and say, gee, we actually need to stick stronger together because, because you know, France, Germany, these countries are at a, in, in a world where you've got Turkey and Russia and China and Iran and India, and in some cases are really strong in their own. You know, Iran is a bigger Middle East power than, than France is, of course. And so there's going to need to be a, these countries pull together. And I, I don't know if it'll be benign neglect from the United States' part mm -hmm. that pushes them together. I, it's really too early to say, but I don't, I don't think there's going to be some grand design. I worry more that we'll go back to the days of dividing and conquering uh, within Europe. And I, I hope we don't do that, but mm -hmm. I worry that, we, that it may come to that. I don't know. I just want to make the point that um, there is a shadow hanging over all of this, and that's Brexit. And uh, from the campaign statements of Mr. Trump, uh, he favors Brexit, and I think will probably privilege the relationship with the UK. We may see a stronger special relationship mm -hmm. than we have seen in quite some time. And that is going to, in turn, have an impact on the way the Trump administration deals with the Franco-German motor mm -hmm. and the continent, mm -hmm. um, particularly if the Trump administration decides to actually engage in the divorce negotiations that are going on right now um, in order to protect American firms and to mm. protect what they see as British interests. Uh, so I think we have some unsettled waters ahead of us. One interesting side effect of Brexit is that the British have now said they will not stand in the way of an enhanced European common security and defense policy. We are seeing the beginnings of um, enhanced EU spending, proposal for EU spending, particularly in the research area, but also in some procurement areas, uh, as a way of Europe getting more bang for the euro, if I can put it that way. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a consensus that there will be some enhanced defense spending in Europe, but Europe also needs to figure out how better to spend its money on defense. Yeah. And we are seeing the Commission and the EEAS starting to become players in this debate. It's tiny, but I would say that the Europeans are very much motivated by their fears about what is going to happen in Africa and the Middle East becoming even worse and are starting to get more serious about this as a whole. And I'll just add, in terms of uh, public opinion towards the, the transatlantic relationship, you know, each year in our surveys we ask um, about confidence in the U.S. president. Uh, when we've asked that question in recent years about President Obama in France, it's been, you know, 80 percent or more with confidence in him, uh, you know, just astronomical ratings for, for him consistently. And when we asked this question about uh, Donald Trump, who was, of course, a candidate at the time when we conducted our survey, just 9% in France had confidence in him. And that was right at what we saw around the rest of the European countries that we surveyed. So yeah, obviously, he's coming into this, uh, to his presidency with a lot of mistrust in terms of European public opinion. 
Um, we're going to conduct a big global survey in early 2017 to look at how people around the world are reacting to the Trump presidency. Um, and we want to look at things like Ameri you know, attitudes towards American foreign policies, American soft power. Uh, we'll also want to look at attitudes among allies in terms of what they, what they think about American commitments. You know, a few years ago, we essentially asked a question in Europe, do you think the U.S. will live up to its Article 5 commitments? Majorities tended to say, pretty solid majorities tended to say yes. So we're going to ask that question again and look if, you know, to see if that's changed. People have uh, different feelings now about the security of American uh, commitments uh, through NATO and how do they view the transatlantic relationship overall in a Trump era. And uh, if in France the next president is Fillon or Macron, how that will be, how different would be the relation with the United States? On what crucial points could it be different if it's Macron or Fillon with the Trump administration? Mm. I think that they will, they both value a lot the transatlantic uh, relationship, um, and uh, and I think they are aware of the necessity to cooperate a lot in the Middle East in terms of defense policies. They will both strongly support NATO. So I don't anticipate a major difference uh, between Fillon and Macron in the way they will try to handle with the uh, US administration. Now, I think that the context in the US could let both of us to bet more on Europe, mm -hmm. to bet more on the Franco-German couple. And because they will realize that in many in particular to deal with many crises in the European neighborhood, you will need for Europe, you will have the need for Europe to handle the situation by itself. Mm -hmm. And that you will not be able to rely necessarily on the US support uh, on this. It will be true uh, in the Middle East, but also more and more uh, in Africa. So I think that uh, it's not so much uh, diverging views between Macron and Fillon who might lead to uh, an evolution of the relationship with the uh, US administration than what will be the signal sent by the Trump administration in the next few months. And to finish, uh, a few days ago, the uh, Spanish Prime Minister, uh, Mariano Rajoy, said that uh, the key to fight populism is economic, uh, economical reform. So if some of you want to react before moving on to the question. You know, one of the things is that, uh, that we've seen here is that the, those who are the most uh, economically disadvantaged voted more for Clinton than they did for Trump. So I think we need, although I do think that reform is important and the vision of being seen to be reforming is also important because I think people in Europe do want change, but it is not this, this rise of populism is not coming simply because of economic inequality. It is also coming from people who feel that they are losing their position in society, that the roles that they had before and that they expected to have for generation and generation don't fit in a globalized world somehow uh, without significant change. And even though in Europe, for example, you have strong social welfare safety nets. So it's not the same as here where you, you know, someone could lose their health insurance or something like that. It's, we should not think that just because we fix the economics, we've tackled this problem. And it's not just simply an economic solution, although that is part of it. And I think the idea of reform almost more than 
economics mm -hmm. is going to be key. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think we can move on to the questions. <coughs> yes. Did you have the mic? Thank you. Good morning, Jean-François Watin with uh, the Globalist. And when I came in this morning, the young lad at the entrance asked me whether I was here for France or for Zimbabwe. So I said, well, it's not that bad. Then I listened, <laughs> I listened to the panel, and I think it actually it is that bad. It's probably easier to be in the Zimbabwe panel. So two questions. Uh, the first one is about social values, immigration issues in the elections. And although Jean-Marie Le Pen, the older one, said that the French would always prefer the original to the copy, now for decades, the center-right has been playing with the themes of the far-right, using them. So could the panel explain to me what the differences are in social immigration values between Marine Le Pen's program and Francois Fillon's program? And the second one, which is on the economic front, there is one reform that is not mentioned in the panel, which would be very painful in the short term, but which is the only way uh, to reestablish some sort of balance within the EU, which is to get out of the euro. Because the euro has been a terrible tool as far as not only the French economy, but all economies in Western Europe have been concerned. You have now a situation in Germany where the euro is terribly undervalued and it's terribly overvalued in, in France. And what has destroyed French manufacturing is not Chinese competition. It's German competition. Well, uh, I will... Uh I disagree with you on, the, on your analysis of the euro, uh, but I will let uh, Fran, our specialist, to, uh, to answer to, to this point. Uh, with regard to the center-right, far-right, I think you have major differences. Yeah, it's true that you have a part of the center-right that has tried to uh, seduce more and more voters of the far-right. Uh, and during the campaign, it was striking that we have seen in the right-wing primaries, certain candidates try to align a bit more with certain proposals coming from the far right. However, I think that Fillon has been always very clear that he was not trying to stigmatize certain parts, certain components of the French society, that uh, he wants to fight against the rise of Salafism, the rise of extremism, but he wants to... And on the Burkini, as I said, we, our point is that you should avoid certain populist controversies. But the fact is that uh, I think that he wants first to deal with the major issues that are, again, uh, fundamentalism, the training of imam, uh, and, uh, and in a context where he would, of course, respect secularism, but uh, not trying to blame and to use Islam or the Muslim, French Muslim people as a scapegoat. And François Fillon has always been very clear on this, as most of the politicians of the center-right. So I think it would be very dangerous to make a kind of assimilation between the far-right and the center-right, because they are really different, and, uh, and it would only play in favor of someone like Le Pen to try to assimilate both of them. So um, I think on the comparison between the far right and the center right, uh, in the French case in particular, some of it is uh, 
the European positions. Yep. So it is, it is the, um, what Marine Le Pen has said about Europe. It is also that one uses a language of great intolerance, and the other one uses a language of more modest intolerance. So I think there's a rhetorical difference which is nevertheless important. On the euro, I think we all need to understand that the euro has always been a political construct. Uh, when it was created, there were many economists who lined up across Europe and said, this, is, this doesn't actually make sense for these economies. Uh, they're too diverse. And what we have since seen is a, a eurozone that has struggled to improve its governance. And I think the alternative right now, because once you're in a certain spot, you can't just undo what you did 10 years ago, 15 years ago. You have to actually think about where you're going to go forward. And I think what we're going to see instead is more governance in the Eurozone along the line of the five presidents report. We may eventually see you know, much more aligned fiscal policies. But I think in the end, it does require the Germans to accept debt mutualization. That we are all political. And I actually think that they will eventually when it is a major German bank that fails. But, um, but it will take crisis. And you know as well as I, Jean-Francois, that the EU works through crisis. And that's where the decisions are made. So I expect that we still have a rocky road in front of us. But it won't be going backwards to no euro. It will be going forward to a euro that actually does make more economic sense than it does now. Because the disruptive influence of going out of the eurozone for all the countries, including Germany, France, even Greece, yeah. would be yeah. too disruptive. And just one additional point on the far right, center right. I think that the center right is really pro-reforms, pro-economic reforms. Mm -hmm. and what is striking with the far right is that they have the same economic platform as the far left. Yes. And if you look at many of the economic advisors of Le Pen, they come from the far left, mm -hmm. which would be a major problem if Le Pen goes to the second yeah. round of the presidential election, because I think a substantial part of the far left voters of Mélenchon might hard. vote yeah, yeah. for Le Pen at the second round. But which is clear that the far left and far right share uh, anti-globalization, anti-EU, anti-reform in the economic field agenda. It's not at all the case of the center right mm -hmm. or the center left. Another question? Uh, yes, Garrett Martin, American University. Uh, I'm a little less sanguine about the possibilities of France reforming. I mean, I also grew up in similar age in France. Uh, I've known the Front National being a force in French politics you know, since 1983 in terms of its breakthrough. Uh, a lot of the debates you talked about the labor market have been put forward for decades. And I'm wondering if part of the problem is the lack of renewal of the French political class. Uh, the provenance is very narrow, There's one school in particular. Uh, but also it's very dynastic. I mean, Le Pen is obviously the, the daughter of. A lot of the people who were in the Les Républicains, the primaires, were daughters or sons of. Um, so it's very hard to imagine people who've been in the system for so long having the courage to reform. I mean, Macron is a little bit of the outlier, but. François Fillon has been a deputy since I've been alive. So that makes sense. I'm not giving away my age, I guess. Well, I tend to agree with, with you. We need a renewal of political elites in France. It's 
obvious. And we need, in particular, I think, more people who have expenses in the private sector, who have been educated abroad, who are involved. And I think one of the challenges of my generation in France will be to re-engage in the political debate and not consider that it's just uh, full of apparatchik of cynical person and not wanted to be involved. If they want to push for change on the left wing, on the right wing, people uh, we have a different background should be more involved in politics. But what you have seen in the last few weeks, I think is very interesting. The right-wing primaries, the two most prominent political figures of the right-wing over the last two decades, Alain Juppé and Nicolas Sarkozy, yeah. out of the political game. President François Hollande, the first time in the Fifth Republic that he is a president in good health, will not run for another mandate. So it's a major change. And you mentioned the fact that Emmanuel Macron, he just created his movement one year ago. He has never been elected. And he's 38, 38 years old. Mm -hmm. And despite all this, he's doing extremely well in the polls. So I think there is a need for renewal. There is a desire renewal among French citizens. Now, well, we have to see more and more uh, new leaders emerging, but I think we are on a positive trend. Yes. Christian? Thank you. Sin Caro Conrad Adenauer Stiftung, a German political foundation, but I'm French originally. Uh, a question. Uh, on that, uh, Jeremy, uh, we are talking a lot about Macron this morning. I'm really a bit uh, impressed by that. Do you really think that the left has a chance to be in the second round of the presidential election? So that's one thing. And if we assume, like the polls do, I don't know if someone wants to believe them <laughs> anymore, but if we assume that we have the center-right and the far-right for the second uh, round of the presidential election, and given the fact that Fillon's economic program is quite extreme, people compare him to Thatcher, for example. Okay. Don't you think there is a risk that he might scare the lower middle class uh, that might think, OK, if we have more or less same position mm -hmm. on migration and radical Islams, why don't we take uh, Marine Le Pen? Because he will destroy, maybe, so these fears, mm -hmm. he will destroy our social security and everything. I'm not talking about the traditional far left that so might that, go, mm -hmm. what you said, but mm -hmm. the more lower middle class in general. So thanks. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for your question. I think that uh, we have to be very humble in terms of predictions. So last elections have shown us that we shouldn't, uh, shouldn't be too confident. I fully agree with you that in the current political landscape, is the left wing remains so divided with the far left candidate, Mélenchon, the socialist candidate after the primaries in January, and Emmanuel Macron. It would be, even though Emmanuel Macron is trying to be center left, center right, it would be very difficult for one candidate to uh, be qualified for the second run. Now, we might see the landscape evolving in the next few months. Uh, but in the current situation, I agree with you that it would be difficult. Uh, with regard to, uh, to Fillon, I think that we will have to also see how the context will evolve. You never know, if you have a certain number of terrorist attacks in the next few months before the presidential election, that the security context is evolving, uh, it might also change the situation before, before the election. With regard to François Fillon, I think that he's aware of the need not to disconnect from the center-left, from many people who want to implement structural reforms but not a Thatcherite agenda. And I think that it's already what he's trying to do. Uh, yesterday, he published a column in Le Figaro trying to explain what would be his reform of the uh, healthcare system and trying to explain that, no, it will not be a tabula rasa of the French social model. Mm -hmm. So I think he's really aware of this concern. Now, once again, he led a campaign for the right-wing primaries. 
now he has to convince voters from the center left and the center right if he wants to be elected. So it will be one of his main challenges. We'll see. So Patrick Chamorel, Stanford University. So we all agree that the main issue is about method. How do you reform? Because we all know what needs to be reformed. Uh, so do you have any suggestions about that? <laughs> well, my, one of my understandings, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that Fion wants to go early and often to the referendum. Isn't that right? Which is going to be interesting to see how that goes. <laughs> you know? Not something I would advise. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he has to, he has to, that really, uh, he has to assume that he has a pretty strong mandate, which especially if he, if he is able to, if, if it is a Fillon versus Le Pen, and he feels like he's got a pretty strong mandate, you know, that is risky because then if people feel like they didn't have a choice in the election, their choice was that socialists had to show up to keep Marine Le Pen out of the Elysee, that first referenda, you wonder what people are going to go and what are they thinking that they're voting for. Um, so I think it's, it's a little risky in that context, but I think that's how, one of the ways that he is seeing a way to uh, and of course, there's the legislative elections that would come after. How to break through these blockages, and if, is what you're saying is correct. The country generally wants reform, but is held back by smaller groups. The referendum is certainly one way to do that, but it's it's risky. And the precedent, of course, is uh, you lose your, you know, I, and that would be highly destabilizing for someone to, to leave office after losing a referendum. You could end up term. like Renzi. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, with less time under his belt. Yeah, I, I wouldn't support, of course, the solution of a referendum. Now, where I'm optimistic is that I think that if you are a candidate with a strong mandate to reforms, like Fillon, like potentially Macron, Valls, maybe, I think they would be able, really, to have the legitimacy during the, at least the first 100 days to implement structural reforms. And there is one positive thing with the presidential system, is that it really gives the legitimacy to the president to do whatever he wants, at least at the beginning. Mm -hmm. So. It's where I would be optimistic. That said, I was I was studying at Sciences Po in 2007 when Sarkozy was elected, and you know he was he was in some way, in important ways an outsider, in other ways not so much, uh, right? And but and he talked quite the game. I actually went to some of his rallies, and it was it was really something to to what he was talking about doing, and he did some interesting things in the foreign policy side. But it's it remains a great mystery to me uh, the. The way he, he blinked, uh, you know, and didn't really get, didn't, didn't uh, push through the agenda that I thought he had a chance to do. Hi, uh, Dave Snyder. I represent uh, transatlantic um, insurers, and so let, let me ask you, from a business community standpoint, what messaging would you suggest from the transatlantic business community that would best result? in the most favorable outcome, recognizing the election results that we already have in the US. Because I think the business community will be a player in, in responding to people's needs and directly or indirectly in the upcoming election. So, I mean, if you had the business community in front of you, what would you say to them about what they ought to be doing and saying? Is that doing and saying to the to French political leaders? and American political leaders considering the whole transatlantic relationship. Hmm. Interesting. So in, the, in my, my day job, I work in, uh, for Jones Group International. We do some of this kind of work. And, and one of the things that I think is going to be important is what are the conditions that, particularly in the political scene, that 
is what, what is the certainty that the businesses need to see from government to make investments? And so we talk about American infrastructure. There's all these plans. We want to build all this infrastructure in the United States. And we talk to guys who do that. And they say the United States is one of the worst places in the entire world to invest in infrastructure because the minute that they want to do anything, there's lawyers come up and permitting and protest movements and things like that. And it's really hard to do. And so I think the, for the business community to articulate to politicians, there's a lot of money sitting on the sidelines. What are the kind of, and, and there's a lot of job creation potential sitting on the sidelines, quite frankly. And what are the things that we need to see from politicians? I don't think slamming them on Twitter is really the way that, <laughs> that's not probably the kind of relationship that business would like to have with government. What are the kinds of things that, um, what, what are the, what might business look to do if France could take certain reforms? I think that would be an interesting thing to hear. What kind of, you know, what, is France is a country where um, I think a lot of Americans would want to do business, but some people sit on the sidelines because they run into different political problems and government interference. And so what are the kind of, uh, I think that kind of dialogue is going to be is critical to have between business and government, and particularly a set of what expectations, uh, what business needs to put money on the table. I would say that the business community needs to relaunch, as it did in the early days of the TTIP negotiations, a uh, campaign that stresses the importance of the transatlantic economic relationship, and not just a trading relationship, but the investment relationship. There are some 15 million jobs on both sides of the Atlantic that are directly from a European company investing here or a US company investing within the EU. And that doesn't include the secondary suppliers in the supply chain who are affected by that. But there's another issue that I think has revealed itself, particularly in Europe, but not only. And that is, a, a, if I can put it this way, an anti-corporatism. Uh, a reaction against the large-scale multinational company. And I think, therefore, that the business community in, in highlighting the strength of the transatlantic economy and the importance of, of this economy, because we are each other's major investors, we are each other's largest trading partners, is that we also need to ensure that small and medium enterprises are part of that discussion. I think particularly in a country like France and also one like Germany where the Mittelstand is a key part not only of the economy but of the identity, the economic identity of the country, uh, that we need to make sure that French citizens understand that it is not just the big companies that benefit from globalization and from international economic interaction, but it is also the smaller and the medium-sized companies. So I think there needs to be a vocal business voice out there. I think that the US administration actually offers um, an interesting moment because as we think about how Europe should reach out to this administration, is it going to be Jean-Claude Juncker? No, I don't think so. I don't think that's going to be the most effective voice. Donald Tusk won't even be that effective. I just don't see that being the case. But we do need to have major European business entities talking about the role of the transatlantic economy and the importance of that to both. Yeah, I think in terms of the business community as well as uh, pro-globalization political elites, um, you know, both need sort of a better understanding of how publics around the world think about globalization. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think that our, our data would suggest that, you know, people both sort of fear it and they embrace it in different ways. 
Uh, people like the idea of foreign investment, sort of generally. They like uh, foreign companies to come in and build a factory. But then if you talk about a foreign company coming in and, and buying up a local company, then they get very concerned about it. Uh, we typically see that people like the idea of trade in principle, but then they also think that it can lead to lower wages, it can cost jobs, and it can even increase prices, which you know, drives economists crazy, right? But this is what people think. Um, so people have complicated views, I think, about globalization in lots of different ways. And you know, if you want to make the case for trade, globalization, uh, foreign investment, those types of things, I think you need to understand uh, how to activate sort of the positive things people think about when they think about globalization and make the case that those outweigh the negatives. Okay. If there is one last quick question. Other? No? Okay. Thank you. Oh, you have one? Okay. Just one last quick. To elaborate on small and medium business, how do you convince the little people that their jobs are not going to be leading to other countries? Like, how do you convince? Because I think the argument for most commoners, uh, will you educate yourself and become more technological societies? So you don't have to have a right. small medium. So how do you convince them that it's not just education? Because I think it's one thing to say, you will find alternatives for you versus these are the alternatives. Well, I wouldn't necessarily link that with small and medium enterprises uh, because those are often more flexible. And there are studies that show that those SMEs who export hire more people than those who do not export. So, and a lot of SMEs, especially the small businesses, won't ever be exporting, you know, I mean, because they're like hairdressers or people like that. They're not going to be exporting, right? But, um, but a lot of smaller businesses that do export and medium ones, then they hire more people and have higher growth. I do think that one of the things that we here in the United States, and I don't know enough about Europe, European, the European experience to say, but we have not done well in this country trade adjustment assistance. So actually trying to retrain people and assist people who have been um, negatively affected by trade. Because most trade deals do have winners and some losers. But we also need to be clear that some of those losers, some of those who lose their jobs, and they think it's because of trade, it's actually because of automation. Yeah. You know, nobody, it, when people come in and invest and build a new factory, they're not building a factory for 10,000 workers. They're building a factory for 250 workers who all know how to handle robots. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to figure out whether it is through some kind of modified apprenticeship program, a la the way the Germans do it, or something else, how do we deal with people? How do we prepare people who are not going to necessarily get a BA and go on into white collar professions, traditional white collar professions? How are they going to cope with this new, um, with new industries? with Industry 4.0, as the Germans would say, which is very much connected to the digital economy. And how do, what kinds of workers do we need for that economy, and how do we get them? Uh, okay. It will be one of the main challenges of the future presidential candidates in France to both have an agenda of structural reforms, but also to propose major reforms to reconnect mm -hmm. these millions of people who have lost, in a way, because they have the feeling to be the losers of globalization since now two, three decades, right. how we will propose really measures in order to integrate them again to the job market and to give them a future in a, in a world, in an economy that will go through major transformations. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you.